Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and producer of our dope theme music. This week we are taking an unscheduled and unexpected detour off of the main highway. This podcast normally barrels down, because as interested as we are pretty much all the time around Hell and High Water HQ in politics, culture, and their intersection, at this particular moment... The keen-eyed, sharp-minded, and sober-sided crew that makes this show, and their shiftless, aimless, usually bedraggled, and always bourbon-addled boss, that would be me, are in complete and total alignment about our mutual obsession with a slightly different point of intersection, the place where business, technology, culture, and politics come crashing together. In particular, we are riveted by the splashy headlines involving two iconic American media companies, one old, one new, both with truly global reach and influence, but each suddenly caught up in a swirl of events and buffeted by forces that neither truly understands, let alone has a clue how to master. One of the companies in question, of course, is Disney, which after a stunning spasm of corporate fecklessness, hypocrisy, and sheer incompetence in handling its response to Florida's so-called don't say gay bill, is now suffering the egregious public humiliation of being turned into a punching bag by Ron DeSantis. The other company also, of course, is Twitter, which just yesterday shocked the world by announcing that it had agreed to be taken over by this man. A lot of times, people are reduced to the dumbest thing they ever did. Like one time, I smoked uh, weed on Joe Rogan's podcast. And now, all the time I hear, Elon Musk, all he ever does is smoke weed on podcasts. Like I go from podcast to podcast, lighting up joints. Uh, It happened once. It's like reducing O.J. Simpson to murderer. (laughs) That was one time. That was Elon Musk delivering his monologue as the guest host of Saturday Night Live in May 2021. Back then, Musk was merely the world's richest man, the founder and CEO of SpaceX, and the CEO and head product guy at Tesla, among other fascinating, eccentric, potentially vastly remunerative pursuits. But no one, probably including him, ever imagined that just 11 months later, Elon Musk would end up owning and presiding over one of the world's most important communications platforms. Indeed, even a few days ago, that outcome didn't seem just unlikely. It seemed fantastical, but arguably no more so than the idea that Disney, long synonymous from coast to coast with reliably safe, small C conservative, family-friendly entertainment, would now be routinely pilloried on the right for being excessively woke at best or for grooming children for sexual abuse and actively promoting pedophilia at worst, or that a Republican governor of Florida, an almost certain future presidential candidate, would see less political mileage in cozying up to Mickey Mouse than in repeatedly bludgeoning the smiling rodent about the face and neck and jamming a red-hot poker in its eye. To help us make sense of these two captivating, assumption-shaking, potentially game-changing business stories, both rife with implications for how we inform and entertain ourselves, and yes the conduct and context for our politics, we turn to my friend, Andrew Ross Sorkin. You almost certainly know Andrew from one of his countless high-profile gigs 
He's the co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, the founder and editor-at-large of the New York Times' dealbook franchise, as well as a columnist and assistant editor at The Paper of Record. Also the author of the best-selling book, Too Big to Fail, and co-producer of the multi-Emmy-nominated HBO Films adaptation of the book by the same name, a co-creator of Billions on Showtime, and just recently announced he'll soon be the host of a new streaming series on NBC News Now, about which details are scarce, including from him, the bastard, but that NBC describes as, quote, an intimate look at the people, trends, institutions, and forces shaping our world. That sounds interesting, but doesn't tell you anything. Anyway, can't wait to see it. If you are a little intimidated by how prolific and productive and protean Andrew Ross Sorkin is, well, join the club. There are times when I'm convinced and deeply depressed about the fact that he has secretly cracked the code on cloning and made a half dozen identical copies of himself to get everything done that he gets done in any given week, day, month, year, whatever measure of time that he's constantly cranking shit out. But the most amazing thing about Andrew isn't how busy he is. It's that his busyness never, ever seems to compromise his brilliance. His understanding of the biz tech politics terrain is simply unequaled by anyone in our business. And at the same time, Andrew can gab with the best of them about the way that popular culture renders characters from the business and financial worlds he knows so well and what those renderings say about the state of our culture and its attitudes towards money, power, ambition, greed, and the other sides of those coins. In between our discussions of Elon and Twitter and Disney and DeSantis, we take a little spin down that cultural side road and into Andrew's past, where we learn just how tortured his psyche really is. Not because that stuff is as important as the two big stories at hand, but because if you didn't hear a few fascinating, engrossing, utterly delightful digressions, you would have no way whatsoever of knowing that you were listening to Hell on High Water. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have both the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Might strong intuitive sense is that uh, having a public platform that is maximally trusted um, and, and, and broadly inclusive um, is extremely important to the future of civilization. So that was the man of the moment, Elon Musk, uh, just about 11 days ago up in Toronto at a TED event. It is the only thing that Elon Musk has said on camera to date about what he thinks about Twitter in, in, the, in this period, at least, in which he was in the mix of potentially uh, taking it over. He's now taking it over, and we're going to start this conversation with uh, my friend Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Um, it's great to see Andrew Ross Sorkin here. We're going to start our conversation. We're going to take a big, a big swing at Twitter and Elon Musk. But Andrew, I, I got to say, before, before we get to that sound and what Elon said about Twitter, I want to just ask you a broader question about Elon Musk, which is, I don't know that there's anybody in business today who is so damn interesting to basically everybody I know, anybody who thinks hard about business, who's interested in business or finance or tech and how it intersects with our culture and, and, and American life, everybody, I'm not saying they love him or they hate him. I'm just saying like everyone who's smart about all this stuff that I know is kind of obsessed sometimes guiltily, but it's kind of obsessed with Elon Musk. And so I guess got to ask you, like, you know, I think you are too. You're obsessed with Elon, right? Totally. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. Tell me about what that's about. What is you obsessed with? Why are you so interested? What do you find fascinating about him? Why is he a great character? Why does he matter? All of it. 
Well, I'm obsessed because he has beaten the odds at every step of the way. He has become a Pied Piper where there's this community of people who are true believers. In fact, I would argue that while Tesla unto itself is an engineering feat, the bigger feat is he was a story stock and he was able to somehow beat the odds because the thing he saw was actually that capital was part of the business, that the business model of being able to go back to the markets to get more capital, and he was able to do that. And then, of course, he, he does SpaceX and he does the Boring Company and he's trying to figure out how to adjust people's brains and everything else. And now all of a sudden, he wants to take over Twitter and he wants to take over Twitter not because it's something he, he believes is like a money-making enterprise, but because he believes it has to do with free speech. So all of a sudden now it's a political thing. He's also somebody who's always been sort of a libertarian, but was loved for so long by the left, by the progressives, by the libs. Because the green energy thing in the car, the electric cars. He's a climate guy. I mean, I, I want you to narrate this as a, as a narrative journalist, narrate the story of Elon Musk and, and what happened in this period of time. It's like, to me, it feels like there was no inkling that Elon Musk had any interest in Twitter. And then all of a sudden he was like buying a lot of t Twitter stock. And then there was, you know, is he going to go on the board? He's not going to go on the board. Is he trolling? Is he serious? Is he not? Is he not? I know you've had views about, at, at initially you thought this is going nowhere, but it's still like, it seemed in a, in astonishingly quickly, it went from nothing that no one had any inkling of to the fact the guy now runs, now owns Twitter or runs Twitter in control of Twitter. I mean, maybe it's not surprising. You just tell me how you would narrate the, the, the dramatic arc of this deal and the, the important bends in the road. And how we I, think got it's I think this is completely surprising. And to some degree, I think if you had asked him even several months ago, it's surprising to him, which is to say, I think he was endlessly fascinated with Twitter. There was a time, by the way, in 2017, where somebody told him after he, he wrote, I love Twitter, someone said, well, you should buy it. And he literally wrote back, well, how much is it? <laughs> So it's a very Elon kind of response. Yeah, I imagine in the back of his head, he might have thought to himself, wouldn't it be great one day to either own Twitter or be able to influence Twitter? And I think that's really where it began for him in the beginning of this year, when I think he did start buying some shares in the company without necessarily a game plan as to what would happen next. And I think he began conversations with the company. The company tried to put him on the board. And I think very quickly... Once he agreed to be on the board, he started to realize the implications of what it meant to be one person on a board of 12. And he's used to obviously running the show pretty much himself in every instance. I can't think of anything that Elon Musk is. is he on a board? I don't think he's on any other boards, right? I don't think other he's on own. any other boards. I mean, so you, I, would you put Elon Musk on your board? I mean, he may be a brilliant guy, but you're not, you don't want to be like just one of seven board members. It doesn't seem like well, a very good idea. <laughs> I think he realized it wasn't a very good idea. I'm not sure that the Twitter board ever thought it was a, a great idea either, but I think for them, it was a, a sort of keep your friends close, your enemies closer. And maybe, and, it, would, maybe it would mollify him. Like it's like, okay, now, you're, now you, have, you have a voice at the company. You, you won't try to fuck with us. Bring him under the tent and hopefully he leaves you alone. Right. And at the very last minute, literally when he was supposed to physically join the board, yeah. he says, I'm out. Yes. And the second he says he's out, of course, Twitter goes to Twitter and the world goes to Twitter because what's he really going to do next? Is he just going to walk away and take his ball with him and go home? Or right. is he going to try to buy the whole thing? 
And, and I think, let me just ask you this question. In a normal world, you, you've covered a lot of M&A yep. over the course of your life, right? If it wasn't someone as eccentric as Elon, that would have been taken as a signal to everyone that this guy's going to try to launch some kind of a hostile bid. He's going to try to put something together to take the company over. If he just, he, they invited him on the board, he steps away now. You're thinking, well, if he wouldn't, have, if he didn't want to control it initially, he would never have fucked around with it. But with Elon, you think there's a chance he could just get bored with the idea and walk away, you know? I think there's a chance that he could get bored with it and walk away. There's also, in most instances, individuals who don't actually have the cash um, and the economics of these, this is a, to begin with, is a troubled and challenged business. Yeah, yeah. You think to yourself, how is he supposed to do this? Is he really right. going to put up all of this money? Is he going to margin all of his Tesla shares? Is he going to sell shares? Are, is any bank actually going to do this with him? Right, right. And the right. truth is, first of all, if you're on Wall Street and one of these banks, you're literally just your eyes are doing like calculators doing the fees. Right. If I margin this loan for him, if I can do this, if I can do that. And he's got a lot of he's got a lot of shares of Tesla that he can he can loan against. So right. I mean, I remember hearing I remember hearing Swisher say two things in the middle of this. She said like that she's like on one hand I think you got to take him seriously, and on the other hand he would put a lot of his other businesses at risk because he doesn't really have the economics to take this over. And I remember thinking, okay, well I don't know if that's true. I mean I don't I don't know th- this world all that well. But it's but she wasn't sort of dismissing him. She was kind of like. You know, it will be risky for him to do this unless he can figure out some really interesting financing. But no one should dismiss that he's serious, like because he's the you know. right. No, I think that the question about financing was a question, and also to the extent that owning Twitter has big implications potentially for his ownership of other businesses, given right. the regulations, given the political interest, given all of the the spotlight that's now going to be on him yes. and Twitter and what happens, oh, yes. and the fact that he owns frankly, two businesses that are reliant in large part on politics, which is to say the Department of Justice, huge, does huge business with SpaceX yeah, right. and, you know, tax credits, carbon taxes, all sorts of things are wrapped up in what you think is going to happen with Twitter. And so the electric, And the electric vehicle thing. I mean, he's just, he, the guy's got so many, inter- I mean, there's, so, there's many- so many pieces to this. And if you believe that politicians are, you know, by the way, which is what gives him influence now. That's right. the other piece of this. Gives him enormous influence in ways that he didn't have even before this. This is like Bezos buying the post in a way, right? And, I mean, oh, and, and on, I, I mean, I don't mean on I don't mean, steroids. Yeah. And excuse the pun, since you oh, mentioned. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, what, are you, what are you suggesting there, Andrew? Are you talking about? Are you talking about Jeff Bezos? Think, think he's maybe a little, got a little roid thing going on? Is that what you're saying? I, That's what everybody thinks, right? I'm just saying those. He's got some really killer killer bi- biceps. Yeah, yeah. You usually don't get those as you get into your mid fifties. Um, I agree. I'm just saying it, it made Jeff Bezos a player in Washington, and and totally. he was and he wasn't previously. I agree with you on steroids, but I'm just saying it's it's a similar model where a guy who was a tech guy had apparently had no interest in the media business. All of a sudden, he goes right. out and decides to buy the Washington Post, and he's you know now he's like the bell but of the ball is, in D.C. But this is Washington. This is now going to be Brussels. This will yes. be Hong Kong. This will right. be everywhere. Twitter's everywhere. Yeah, right. right. Twitter's everywhere, and so to finish the story, yes, yes, what, I, what I think happens is he comes up with the financing. The banks actually give him the money. He also, by the way, commits his shares in ways that I don't think anyone anticipated or imagined he would ever do. And once that happened... What does that mean, commits his share? He committed his shares. What does that mean? He basically is committing his Tesla shares, huge quantities of his Tesla shares. And so if the shares go down, he's on the hook. He's on the hook for this in ways that I don't right. think anybody ever imagined and, and nor expected. 
And, and, that, and that's how the financing, like, that's why this thing that might have seemed like it was too much of a stretch, he was able to put this together, both because, you said before, they, the Wall Street banks see all the fees. They also see, like, you want to be in business with Elon Musk because he's doing a lot of shit. You know, you have to say, nice, you know, you're totally. looking for ancillary businesses, other deals you can do, and other, connect to other companies, all that. But somehow they put it together because that's how it came together, the, the financing. Right, so now they have the money. And now Twitter's board, which was on its heels, by the way, if you, if you know the members of that board, they didn't want to do a deal with Elon. I mean, they didn't want to sell this company, but Twitter happens to be a Delaware-based company, which means that you have one fiduciary duty. Forget all of these corporations in America who tell you that they now are interested in stakeholder capitalism, which includes you know employees and uh, communities and all of this. If you're, if you're technically based in Delaware, all that doesn't matter in the end. You can't think about those things. And so here was this bid at $54.20. The stock probably would go back to 30 bucks. Nobody mm. thinks that there's a viable plan, standalone plan that gets you back over this number anytime soon. Right. And I think that this board looked into the past. Even you can you know about this going back to the history of Silicon Valley, you can think of when Microsoft tried to buy Yahoo and they spurned that. And everyone who was involved in that at Yahoo now looks like they made one of the greatest mistakes of their exactly. lives. Yeah, right. And I think this board just said, you know what? We want out of the headlines. We want out. We want out. Right. We're just going to give it to you. And the Delaware thing means that they also does it mean that they also would have potentially because of their fiduciary responsibilities they would have been they would have faced lawsuits shareholder lawsuits if they turned this down absolutely right they, they would, would have been, been litigation up the wazoo right they would have been sitting in depositions for the next five years <laughs> for their their lives right isn't this kind of the core of the story which everyone will focus on and I know the business press will focus on the thing I'm about to say but broadly speaking everyone's going to be obsessed going forward with Elon. What does he want? What's he going to do? What's it mean? Et cetera, et cetera. But there is a really important story. The thing that you that were you sort of just talked around it, which is Twitter has been a business fuck up. I don't mean a, a singular, discrete fuck up, but I mean yeah, it's not been a great business. It's not been what it's like what people think it could have been. It's not certainly not Facebook. It's not even the, in the ballpark as a as a as a business with some of these other the large the fang companies that have you know gone on uh, to rule the world. It's still like niche product, even though like you said, it's all over the world and in, among elite knowledge workers, everybody's on Twitter. But yep. it's not it's not Facebook, and it's never been a great a great financial performer in terms of its its share price or profitable or hugely profitable. It's just been kind of a dog business really. And that's part of what made them vulnerable. On Wall Street, they call this company dead money. If you look at a stock chart over the last decade, it is dead money. It has not gone anywhere. And that's what made them vulnerable because they hadn't figured out the right business model, either on advertising or on trying to use it for payments or on anything else. So the opportunity, look, I'll give you the, the upside opportunity for Elon. And I don't know if it's going to work or not, but is in a private context where you don't have to worry about quarterly earnings, could he invest a lot of the business in trying to make a payments business? He spent you know, his formative years at PayPal, cryptocurrencies. He's obviously plays around with Dogecoin and all sorts of other things. Could he reinvent the advertising experience? Could he pursue subscriber growth in terms of actually having a subscriber driven business yeah. he could do he could try all those things i don't know which if any of those will work and i will never bet against this guy because you know you'll always be wrong there's almost no company i can think of where the ratio where the influence of it is and maybe you can tell me some because you you'll yeah. have better better comps than i will like is there a com any other company where the centrality of it's the kind of like to the culture 
to at least to, again at the at the level of the the knowledge worker economy and, and the media. No, I certainly. don't think there's any other company that has the, the power and influence over the conversation on a daily basis than Twitter. You know, I, well, I hate to say this, but it used to be that people would say to you that if something was appeared on the front page of the New York Times, yeah. the rest of the media around the world chase that story. Would yeah. chase those stories yeah. and that and that directed the evening news broadcast yeah. and, and cable like. news and everything else. Right. So that's how you did your rundown, which you laid the front page of the New York Times. You know how that I and I I hope that still happens to some degree, but you know how <laughs> it happens in reality today? People looked at what's trending on Twitter. Well, although, and the, here's the, 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 I'll just in passing, right? You got to acknowledge that a lot of what's trending on Twitter is often things based on things that were reported in the New York Times. So, Correct. yes, thank you for that, actually. The things that drive shit on Twitter is when people break news in the Washington Post or the New York Times or NBC or whatever, right. or, you know, wherever you work. Um, it's just, it's, it's not, it's so influential. But the, the, the stark thing of it is that for a thing that's so influential, you would think a thing that was that influential would be a better business, and it's not been. Is that because of bad management? Is that because like what's the what would you what do you put down Twitter's underperformance as a business to given the success of other social media, of other social networks, leading with Facebook and its influence? You would think that those two things there's a there's we've seen a social network be generate enormous money, enormous amount of money, and we know how influential Twitter is. Is that just like operational failure? Is that vision failure? Is that down to Jack Dorsey? Like what do you who who do you blame for that? Because it is underperformance, especially given the influence level. You would think that they had a very high upside. Okay, so you talked about how knowledge workers use Twitter. And that is actually the problem. Um, there is a high barrier to engaging with the platform, right? You have to write something yeah. in a post that is hopefully clever to your friends or your community in a way that actually you don't on Facebook, you don't on Instagram, you don't on these other platforms. It's just a completely different thing. And then the ad experience yeah. I find myself clicking on, on ads on Instagram. I do. They're beautiful. They look like beautiful pictures. You, they got, that, to... you got that shirt off an ad on Instagram. I can tell. I know that shirt. I've seen that shirt. That's shows that shirt. my feed. Yeah. yeah. But, but that doesn't exist yeah, on, Twitter on Twitter right now. But there's probably lots of other reasons and other things that Twitter could ultimately do. But, but do you, th I mean, again, I ask you the question in a personal way. I mean, not, not to trash right. Jack Dorsey, but is that lack of leadership? Is that like that, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, Dick Costello was a nice guy. I mean, like, you know, and as you know, Fred Wilson, someone I'm very close to is not never a CEO of the company, but it, I do think there's a story to be told about how a company that has, has become so central to the culture, like why did these smart people who worked there and, and they had the world at their feet. Um, and they somehow never could put it together as a business. And now it's in the hands well, of Elon Musk. Hold on. For, for, Let's for also say it, there is a business there. I mean, the thing does throw off something like a billion dollars a year. It's worth now, if, if you believe this takeover bid, 40 plus billion dollars. Right. So it's not not a business. It's yeah. just a smaller business on a relative basis. You called it dead money a few minutes ago. That's all I'm and saying. It was considered <laughs> It was considered dead money. But yeah. there, there are other influence. I mean, there are media businesses that people yeah, would argue yeah. are sort of niche, but have enormous sure. uh, reach and influence. But yes, I mean, there's no question that I think Jack Dorsey wishes the business was it turned could have been a different business. So you made the point earlier that that the reason that Elon wants this thing isn't really about profits and that it is about something else. And that's I want what just, he says. Well, I know. So I want to go back to the, just drill down on that. Do, do you think you understand why he wants this? Is it is it the influence thing you talked about just a couple minutes ago? Is it, you know, some actual 
aspirational, idealistic kind of, you know, techno libertarian dream? Is it that he really is offended at the fact that they, they canceled a bunch of people and he's really, really genuinely offended by the fact that they try to keep hate speech off the platform? Like, you know, there's all this generalized stuff about his libertarianism, and he's obviously all over the map on what he believes about in politics, you know, with his mask views that are very like crazy right wing and, and some other things that are obviously uh, much more mainstream. Do you think you have a handle on why he wants it, number one? And do you have a handle on what you think he's actually going to do with it? Or is it too early to say? I start with the premise that it's about influence. I think I've called him an opportunist. This was a moment in time where he saw an opportunity and thought to himself, I could have even greater influence than I have today. And I think in the grand scheme of things, this is also a small, you know, for us, this would be, you know, a massive deal. For him, this is like, this is like pocket change. It might even be like pocket lint, John. I mean, in terms of the size and scale of his overall fortune, he believes that, you know, the shares of Tesla are going to keep going up and SpaceX is going to go up. So this might be, you know, a midlife crisis purchase is like buying a car for some people. And I think that he thinks this is going to be fun. Yeah. Here's a question that everyone's asking right now, right? Right. We talked before about how we're obsessed with Elon Musk yep. and interest, you know, just just for the variety of reasons we said, right? Can't, okay. can't, can't look away. And that's, you can't look away. That's that what we say about people who, who do a perfect 10 on the high parallel bars. It's also what we say about car crashes, right? So, yep. but here's my question. You are a person who has studied people with great wealth and who have tried to use their great wealth uh, to, means, to ends that were malign and sometimes benign. Um, right. But they've all, they're all interested. A lot of this thing, and you, what you and I are both obsessed with in this, is not just the money. It's about power. It's like, how do I use the money and the status and the influence to, get, to move the world in some way, right? Does it trouble you at all? Do you think there's reason to be worried? And if there's reason to be worried, what's the reason to be worried? It's just like, I, you know, another eccentric billionaire, multi-billionaire who owns an, a key piece of our information architecture. Like, what could go wrong with that? It's just, there is something I think that for a lot of people, they're just a little bit, even if they admire him, they think he's quirky, they think he's interesting and fun. They loved him on Saturday Night Live. They like that he smokes weed. They, right. he, they like Grimes, whatever. But they look at that and go, do we really need to have all of our communications architecture and infrastructure owned by weird, oh, weirdo that, trillionaires who don't like have anything no in common with normal people? There is no question that I think that this is going to create an even bigger question in Washington and elsewhere about the controls on these companies. You're 100 percent right. The true worry is, I don't know, did you see his tweets over the weekend about Bill Gates? I did not. Okay, so he tweeted out a picture of Bill Gates, then a little emoji of a pregnant Bill Gates and said something like, um, uh, quick way to get rid of your boner. That was that was the line. Now, first of all, not very funny, you know. Like well, I don't I don't mind rude humor, but like it's just some of them are just not that. You're like, dude, like so I don't care if you want to be puerile, but like that's not funny. It's just not funny. But but I think the and, and look, I didn't <laughs> I didn't find it particularly funny either. And there were people who clearly who found it funny, but I also say to myself, look, I've got kids uh, who, by the way, look up to Elon Musk because of what he's created with with Tesla, Tesla and SpaceX. SpaceX, sure, and. He's a role model of sorts, but clearly his approach to even how he tweets himself to so think about how he tweets himself and then think about what he would allow on the platform. You talk about misinformation. You know, so he would, by the way, he was trying to get back at, at Bill Gates. He has a, a beef with Bill Gates uh, because Bill Gates had shorted Tesla. But last year, there were tweets that went out, as you know, misinformation where people were suggesting that Bill Gates was was developing the COVID vaccine 
to put uh, you know chips in people's arms. And at the time, Twitter downranked those tweets and put on them notices saying that this is false. In an Elon Musk world, uh, given his beef with uh, Bill Gates, would he say, no, leave it up? That's sort of a microcosm of the issue. Right. Your thing is is not the worry of, you know, the Murdochs, which is what, you know, the left worries like they're pursuing an ideological agenda that, 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 that and again, I'm not I'm not buying that. I'm not saying that right. we know Murdochs have very complicated media holdings. Some of them are not ideological at all. But there is this view of like that's a, a thing of we worry about these billionaires controlling our, our the media because they will. They will neuter it. They will they will bias it. They will slant it. They will pursue plutocratic ends. The variety of ideological problems with it. Your thing with with Nussie is not that. Your thing is is he responsible enough to have the kind of what what looks like? I mean, you know, Kay Graham used to talk about how the Washington Post was public trust. The New York right. Times thinks of itself as a public trust, as you right. know, and it's and it's a thing that is very old fashioned. But many people who work those places, and I would tell you, even though most people who read them don't understand what the fuck that means, they're actually they they sleep under the comfort of the fact that the, that these old fashioned institutions think of themselves as public trust. And and you're, I think, saying Elon Musk is never going to think about Twitter. He might think about it as a public utility in terms right. of how it should be regulated, but totally. he's not going to think about it as a public trust. And that's kind of the problem. He can cool. just be, he's just I, gonna, not mature I, enough in some level. To I do have this. no idea what where his politics really lie, given that he's on all sides of issues at all the time. But I think, you know, look, the, the big issue that every Democrat uh, in the White House or, or, or every Democrat of Washington seems to be talking about today is, you know, will Trump go back on the platform? Right. What does that mean for the midterms? What right. does that mean for the election? What does that mean for democracy? Yes. yes. So, yes, that will have an impact one way or the other. I don't know how it'll what the impact will right. be. And I don't think that Elon Musk would be putting Trump back on because he wants him to win necessarily, but because he has a philosophy about freedom of speech or what have you. And And I think that those all those things have to be weighed in ways that I'm not sure he necessarily will. Right. So far, what I've heard from Elon Musk in terms of his, his political philosophy sounds less developed. And I say this to someone again, you, like I told you before, right. I'm obsessed with him, too. And I'm yep. I, I, like your kids enormously admire some of the stuff he's done. And I find him super interesting. and I like interesting people in the world. So love it. I'm, I'm yep. not tra- I'm not trashing him. But it, when he expresses his political views, his political philosophy, his libertarianism, he sounds like one of those kids you, we both knew who when they first got to read Atlas Shrugged when they were like 15 years old, there's like that kind of primitive dumb shit libertarianism of like the Isle and Rand, you know, it's like that. There's, yeah, there's, a, there's a kid in every high school who was like that. Right. It's not very developed. It's not like he's not sophisticated. I'm not, I'm not trying to like to be hoity toity about this, but I don't think he has a political philosophy. I think he has some, some political impulses and that's what some kind of immature libertarians are is kind of just leave me alone and let me do what I want, which is not really a political philosophy. I imagine that's right. But the the secondary part of it is I also think that he is so brilliant and so bright that if he decided to take the next six months of his life and devote himself to trying to learn all of this and figure it out, he might be able to do it. Having said that, I think he will also learn very quickly that given his other business interests, that it actually will be even tougher than he thinks. Yes. And, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's beyond him intellectually. I'm just saying, like, you know, we can only know so many things. I'm virtually certain I could be like a marine biologist if I, if I, had, if I took up like six years and worked on it. But, you know, it's a limited amount of time. The one thing you don't have any doubt about, you just were talking about it. You don't have any doubt about the fact that he's equipped. This is a media company. He's done all these other things. 
but but so there's like no he has no dem demonstrated skill that he has any expertise in running a media company. But you're saying I think on the basis of his native brilliance that he's equipped to to take this on and he could be a, a good head of the company ceo he could be like run this company well he's that well equipped and that brilliant i'm trying to see the positive side of this and i think that he could he could figure this out you know everybody thinks that he somehow has no eq and all these silicon valley guys don't know what they're doing this guy unlike actually most of the people in the valley even though you may think that he you know he publicly says he has asperger's and all of this he's figured out how He's a salesman at the end of the day. He actually is a salesman. That's what he is. And that is about people. And I think he actually does understand people in a way that may be underappreciated. I mean, when you think about him, this is going to be a wildly overly simplified question, but just for the sake of it, like Elon Musk, friend or foe, you know, white hat or black hat. I'm certain you're going to say that's a way too reductionist way of thinking about it. But, you know, how do you think about it? Do you like him? Do you admire him? Yes, I do. You know, there's a guy named Jason Kalkanis, who I think had a great line. He said, betting against Elon Musk is like betting against humanity. <laughs> Look, this guy has really brought us forward. He's leapfrogged us into the future. So I give him enormous credit for that. At the same time, you know, you were saying, is he amoral? Is he immoral? Is he more? I think he's an opportunist is what he is. Yeah. That's what he is. And he is one of the greatest opportunists in the world. All of these things he's doing are interesting in different ways. The space thing's interesting. The brain thing's interesting. You know, the Twitter thing could turn out to be interesting. And I'm not, you know, interesting just as you and I are interested in stories. Stories yep. and characters, man. Is there a totally. better story? In business, is there a better- There's no better story. He's got six different stories that if he was just doing one of those things, they'd be a, a kind of a great story with a great character, but he's doing all of them, right? He is the ultimate character in the play right now that is the business world. And that'll make a fascinating book and a fascinating movie. Walter Osmondson, yeah. by the way, is writing a biography of him. Oh, is he? Well, that'll be very good. What is it you think that makes him the ultimate character in the play right now? What are the qualities that you would say make that true? The success, the failure, the emotion of it. You see the emotion of it. It's communicated every day. The bombast of it. The politics of it. These are not siloed little businesses that are irrelevant. Almost every one of the businesses that he has created and touched touches everybody. It affects the future of who we are as civilizations. Yeah. I, I can't underestimate what all the things that he's touching mean, and that gives him remarkable influence. Somebody wrote once about how what makes great storytelling is that it's like a character you're interested in where you just can't wait to see what happens next, you know? And if you had that, that's the win, right? A great character where you're just constantly like bated breath waiting to see what happens next. Got to see the next episode. Every time, got to see the next episode. Yeah, got to see the next episode. But before you can see the next episode, you got to listen to the first set of ads here on Hell and High Water. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Andrew Ross Sorkin on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. I realized the other day that when we had you on the podcast a year ago, a year ago, that's how long it's been. Wow. Um, we didn't really do like any ARS bio. You know, oh, we didn't really goodness. dig deep. We talked about you as a Hollywood mocker and a mover and shaker and the most influential man in business media, but we didn't talk about your early the case. Yes. So I found this great 
piece of video. I can't believe anybody ever made this, which is a fabulous thing where you were asked at some point at CNBC, someone put a camera on you and asked you to talk about your earliest memory. This is many years ago, eight, nine years ago. And here's Andrew Ross Sorkin apparently trying to recall his first memory uh, from childhood. Let's let's hear what, this is you, not me. I didn't make this up. First memory, I think we rented a house in Vermont. It was like an old farmhouse. It was, or maybe even more like a barn. And it had this circular staircase, very, very sort of thin little staircase. And I, I must've been two and a half or three. And I remember falling or thinking I was falling off the staircase. The other possible one was, and I don't think this would be allowed anymore. There used to be a man in Central Park that we called the Cracker Man. He used to give out saltines to the children as we were, uh, you know, in the, in the sandbox and we'd eat some of the saltines and give them out to uh, the pigeons and uh, feed the pigeons. So apparently that's like what people at CNBC think is compelling BTS content at Squawk Box <laughs> in, in, in 2013. I found it strangely riveting, um, but mostly because it painted a certain psychological profile in my mind, but I'd like you to hear you do some self-analysis. What does it say about a person if the two things they remember from childhood earliest is one, falling, falling down a down. flight of stairs or nearly falling down a flight of stairs, and the other is being accosted in a park by some dude he calls the Cracker Man, feeding him... <laughs> Feeding right. him saltines. It's just a little odd that those are the things that stand out in your mind. What does that say about you? And how has it guided you into the career you currently have? We've talked about this as well. I think that uh, <laughs> insecurity can drive a lot of people to do a lot of things. Uh, sometimes insecurity can be healthy and sometimes it can be debilitating. In my case, it's probably a combination of both, but it's it's worked out better than it was supposed to. So it's funny that you say that or to think about it like that. Look, when I was a child, I think for most of my childhood, I honestly thought I was going to fail. I think to this day, I'm always worried about that. So I think a lot of what I do professionally is an effort to prove to myself or to my mother or to somebody that, you know, I'm capable and I'm, I'm okay, right? Well, I'd like to point out, first of all, despite the fact that these two memories are just dripping with anxiety and existential <laughs> dread, you're fine. You're doing great, man. You're a big success and you've not failed or even come close, to, even, even come close to failing. I just want to reassure you that you don't have to worry. I think you should be past that by now. I'm blushing, as you can tell, like really. Martin McDonough had a play called The Pillow Man, which was a psychotically violent play that was on Broadway a few years back. And now I'm going to write a play called The Saltine Man, The Cracker Man, which is going to be about the, the worst nightmares of Andrew <laughs> Ross Sorkin's brain. A version of being John Malkovich, only it would be called The Cracker Man. I remember that man very, very well. Yeah, he's haunts you to this day. The other thing I notice is that there's almost a, I say this with love, there's an almost scripted way when you're asked about your ridiculously, absurdly precocious rise at the New York Times where you're like, my first byline article was when I was seven years old, and then I had 23 bylines by the age of 11, and then I was working in the London Bureau at the age of 14 or whatever it was. And the way you describe it always is, I don't know, I didn't really think I would ever write, and I didn't think I could put two words together. I never it's had totally this idea. totally true. I promise you I'm not challenging right. the, the sense of insecurity, but you worked very hard at your way in there. Like There was a lot of perseverance involved. It did not happen by accident right? that you ended up there producing a lot of byline articles. I, I, no, no, no. Like, I mean, look, I think it's a combination of things. I always feel, and maybe this is my own self-consciousness, look, if I told you that I got to where I am simply because I worked as hard as I did, and by the way, there's an element of me that actually feels that way, there's another side to that, which is whoever's listening to that is like, come on, dude, you're a white kid who grew up in New York City on third base, and you like walked to the home plate. What are you talking about? So on one side, yes, I feel like I've killed myself. But on the other side, I I think I am, or I like to think I'm self-aware enough to know that 
I have been blessed in so many ways. Like this could have gone the other way, man. Like it right. could have, it just could have, it broke the right way in so, so many times, time after time. Yeah. And I, by the way, that's what I think I worry about all the time. Like I'm always thinking to myself, this could just break the wrong way. The funny thing about could. this is he's telling the truth. This is the, one of those crazy things that you have to get your head around is that number one, in the rest of that video about your first memories, when you talk about the Cracker Man, you acknowledge like, I grew up on West. Central Park West. Right? Yep. You're like, I grew up on, the parking question is not just a random park, it's Central it's Park. It's Central Park right? West. Now, by the way, Upper West Side at late 70s, not what it is today, but yes. And yet there's also a story where you remember from an early age, riding in the back of Fred Silverman's limo, watching Sesame Street in the back I of do. like the head of NBC's limo. So I'm just saying your point about privilege, we both have, you know, we have white privilege and we have some class privilege. But it's also the case that you work incredibly hard. I mean, as hard as anybody I know. So there is obviously you're driven by some kind of fear of falling. In some ways, the fact that you have a certain amount of that privilege, you're like the expectations get set higher. And then if you're neurotic, as you are, and I am, right. no, it's totally it drives true. you to work the way that you work, which is lunatic. Yes, I think that's all right. I just, and I know you don't believe me in this. I like to think I have some kind of talent or that I've manifested something over time. But I truly think this could have gone so poorly and badly. And if you had even asked me when I was 15 years old or 17 years old, what my, what from a professional, look, I think I also have been blessed with a great family and kids and my wife and all, it's just crazy. So I don't know. I don't know what to say about all this, but I'll, I'll send you the check for the, hour, the hour's worth of therapy. Look, Andrew Ross Sorkin, the man teetering on the edge of a staircase that he's about to fall down, co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, founder and editor-at-large of DealBook, columnist and assistant editor at the New York Times, author of Too Big to Fail, which became a movie that was nominated for 47 Emmys or something, and a co-creator of the show Billions. Now I want to ask you this. So yes. here's, I want to ask you about Billions, because as you know, I, I got to I be I know, on, you I, had a cameo in it. I got, I got to be on it. And this season has been controversial. You mm -hmm. were a co-creator of it. Yep. Um, I got to be on it. Very exciting. Opposite Corey Stoll, who is the new Damian Lewis, right? He's mm -hmm. the new center of the show. And the show has changed in a pretty profound way. And it's become in a lot of ways more political because it's really about this question that you and I grapple with all the time. Is it possible to be a good billionaire? That's the essence of it now. Yep. I want to play from the end of season five, the previous season, not the most recent one, the kind of closing scene between Corey Stoll, who plays Mike Prince, billionaire, multi-billionaire, deca-billionaire. And Bobby Axrod, iconic character played by Damian Lewis, basically is, as he's lost a death struggle in a way with Prince in this episode, the final Damian Lewis episode, the final Bobby Axrod episode. I want to play this and then I want to ask you something about it. Let's play that. I'll give you two billion walk away money. We make the deal now. Get it papered before you're arrested and barred from selling. That's a steep discount you want. Pennies on the fucking dollar. Guys with sucking chest wounds should save their breath and not try to negotiate. Long time since I was on the other side of one of these. In a real way. <laughs> it feels, um... Wow. So this is what it is to lose. Okay. Fine. So you get it all? My money, my companies, my people, when, when, when? I mean nowhere to be found. Yes. That I consider a win. So in like the annals of great characters in finance, now that Bobby Axelrod's off the show, how do you stack him up 
When you were on the show, we asked you here last time, we asked you for your five favorite Wall Street movies, and I could go through them, I think. Trading Places, right? Uh, I love Trading Places. Trading Places, Wolf of Wall Street, Wall Street itself, The Big Short and Boiler Room are the ones you gave, right? Yep. How does Bobby Axelrod rank among the great iconic characters of finance on the screen? Oh, goodness. My answer would be at the top. Get your salt shaker out and take this with a grain of salt. Look, I've always thought that Bobby is this sort of particularly unique, remarkable character that was so layered. And I think that Brian Kaufman, Dave Levine, who are the showrunners, have done a remarkable job with this program. And in particular, the Damien character over all these seasons. But it's funny because we're talking about movies. Historically, I would say there is actually very few Wall Street-centric or focused dramas, ongoing dramas, on television. And so in a way, to me, maybe it's part of it was the medium itself, which is you got to live with Bobby and see all different sides of who he was. And you got to root for him and you got to hate on him and, and everything in between. And I think you got to see, hopefully, at certain points into his soul in a way that I think is actually very hard in a film. I mean, I think a film can take you on a two-hour journey when it's executed beautifully. But right. think about something, you know, Damon performed in something like 60 episodes. Right. And I'll, I'm going to ask you about season six and about Mike Prince in a second, because a very different, not a very different kind of character, but a different kind of character. Bobby was like, you know, pure capitalist animal id, right? You talk to Wall Street people only about 150x more often than I do. So I'll ask you whether you have the same impression I do, which is that People in the business liked Bobby, not necessarily mm -hmm. that he was realistic, but that he represented a certain kind of pure version of yes. red meat eating, acquisitive, I don't give a fuck about anything, but getting richer and richer. I don't even care about power so much as I care about freedom and money. And his absence for a lot of people are like, I say this with all the love in the world, I think the show's great and it's doing great and people are still watching it. But you do run across people now and then they're like, I'll never watch that show again. It was all about Bobby for me. Bobby's the iconic character. I don't care about this show anymore. He's gone. I'm never going to watch. Now, you don't run across it that often, but sometimes. So is that your impression? Not the, I won't watch the show, but the attachment. Is that a common thing in people who are in private equity, hedge funds, Wall Street people that kind of thought of Bobby as being a certain kind of pure quintessential version of the essence of them? Yes. There was a piece of Bobby that a lot of people could relate to or felt was relatable, even even people who on the surface you wouldn't have thought would be wanting to relate to a Bobby. I remember getting a, a call from a CEO, I don't know, maybe an episode or two in season one, and they, they asked me if they could get, you know, an Axe Capital vest to walk around in. And I thought to myself, what is wrong with you? Why, why, why do you want... This is, I'm not sure this is going to be good for your rep. So, yeah, I think there's something that people feel. But I also think that you become, hopefully, over time, attached to a character, especially in TV. You know, I think it's part of it is a function of time. So, you know, multiple seasons, you can attach yourself to a character. And, and that's why I like to think, at least, that, you know, as this show continues, that there's an opportunity for people to attach themselves to the soul character now. So God knows I would love nothing more than to play the clip of myself on my own podcast, but I'm not going to do that, even though I contemplated at one point just for laughs. But I will play the last scene in the finale of season six, the most recent one, in which, you know, Corey Stoll, who's supposed to be the good 
I mean, when I went there to shoot, it was hilarious because they redone the whole of Axe Capital, right? And there's a picture of the Dalai Lama on the wall and Stacey Abrams is on the wall. Talk about woke capitalism. That's the whole thing Michael Prince is supposed to be. Self-styled avatar of like, I can be a good billionaire. But what we discover over the course of season six is that he has a very dark heart too, just like Axe. And then he wants to run for president. He thinks he's one of the millennial men, one of the, like, the most special people that could, you know, four or five people every millennium who could run the world, and I'm one of them. So he's an egomaniac and a narcissist, right? And he wants to run for president. This is how it ends with Chuck Rhodes and his successor in the attorney general's office setting up next season. This fucker was planning to buy the White House with cryptocurrency. You got him to flush billions of dollars, but that's not punishment enough. Any man willing to do that is willing to do unspeakable things to feed those desires. We can't let that happen. That's what I've been telling you. Well, that ain't gonna happen (sighs) on my watch. So yeah, you'll be in the clear, but no one can know. You're gonna be working under cover of disgrace. The world will think you're under indictment and going away right up until the minute we lock Mike Prince up. Damn fucking straight. You got a deal. This season, what they were headed towards is very in tune with the times. The original version of Billions was kind of timeless in a way, right? It wasn't particularly wedded to a moment. It could exist at almost any moment. And I mean, obviously the moment of billionaires um, <laughs> and the fetishization around them, but it gets to that populism question again, right? And the question of these, these issues that are now getting interrogated in the show, which have a more explicitly political bent than before, not just because he's running for president, but because these questions are basically about, you know, Chuck Rhodes basically right. saying, there's no way to be a billionaire and be a good person. It's impossible. That amount of money is inherently corrupt. Just tell me about the ways in which you think this is an interesting line of argument that is resonant with the moment we're living in in America. First of all, let me just say about billions for a moment, which is these days I, I function as the president of the fan club. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and co-creator. No, but I'm asking I, I you say, as a viewer and someone right. who's plugged into a lot of these people as much as I, I know your role is. No, no, but what I was going to say is I actually like to think that billions throughout, and again, this goes back to what Brian and David done, is actually be resonant from season one. I, I know you, there are people who feel that it was always timeless and and I love that you feel that way, but I think that every season, and I say this as a viewer as much as anything else, has resonated because it's touched on something that's happening in the culture, in the zeitgeist, in society. And I think it's only gotten louder, this conversation around the role of billionaires, around obviously issues around inequality and the like. But at this very core now, whether it's people now looking at Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or any of these people who we have used the word or fetishized, fetishized, I think people are now raising questions. People are always raising questions, but I think it's now sort of been elevated into the public consciousness. And, and that's what I think that hopefully the show has done over time. So the other show that's kind of stepped up into the space that people adore, I certainly am obsessed with, is Succession. I'm addicted to. Totally addicted. I mean, Logan Roy is in his own way as iconic a character as Bobby Axelrod in a very different way. You know, much more obviously based on a certain family, the Murdochs, though not at all meant to be a robotic clay. Just tell me about why you think that show works. And is part of the reason that it works because it actually has verisimilitude in the ring of truth? Or is it some kind of fantasy that allows people to work out their feelings? They're all dark, evil, like none of these people are healthy human beings, right? So there's an element where you watch it and go, yeah, they have all the money in the world. They have all the things in the world, but they're all completely fucked and amoral and empty and bankrupt. And I feel good about that. Is that why it works? Or is it because 
we all kind of want to be part of that world or both? I think it's a combination of both. I think that succession works because it is like a reality show. And it's end because it's a story of a family. And the family dynamics, as effed up as they are, as I can't believe you said effed up. I think you, I can't believe you said effed up on my podcast. I might have to, I have to shut it down right now. And I got to say the full thing. You know, I'm trying yeah. to keep I got kids who listen to this stuff. Anyway. Sure. But yeah, yeah. So no, I think that succession works because it is the story of a very dysfunctional family. And while most families may not be as dysfunctional, there are elements of that. And then there's the, it's funny, in many ways, there's this aspirational sense too, that everybody wants to have the yacht and have the money and have all this stuff. And yet they want that knowing that all of that stuff may create these awful feelings and awful dynamics between these people. And that's honestly why I think people watch. And it's brilliantly acted and brilliantly written. Brilliantly acted, I mean, across the board. I have to say, it's a very, very well done program that I think is also capturing the zeitgeist in a different way. Do you think that people are like, this is what the Murdochs must be like? Is there some element of that you think that, that it feels? Yeah, I mean, having reported on the Murdochs and interviewed and talked to them for so long, I actually no longer think the show is really about the Murdochs at all. But I think right. there's probably a lot of people that project onto the characters on the show that think they're like the Murdochs, no doubt. And there are elements of the show that, that are clearly taking from that storyline and narrative. But yeah, I think everybody looks at these really wealthy families and really rich people and they want to be them. And yet they also see that it's in many ways terrible and they still want to be them or they want to at least think they understand it or right. something. So Alexander Skarsgård plays Lucas Matson on the show, who's like the head of Gojo and has been yes. in the third season, Gojo, which is like some weird combination of Google and, and Twitter and I don't know what Facebook. Some, but he has a very Elon Muskish kind of quality. And, and I want to just play this one thing because it's, I think, in some ways, one of the most beautiful things in the entire season, last season of Succession, is the two of them talking in the finale of the third season where... Are they going to merge or not? Logan's company, Waystar Royco and Gojo. Sure. Some of your content is pretty cool, I guess. But business-wise, it's time for you to beef up or sell out. And you can't become a tech player because you and your business are just too fucking old. I don't want to be rude because you're a legend. Honestly, you're a fucking bulletproof tank man. So you want me to come in your sauna and tell you what a pretty pecker you got? I'm just really excited about the future. So am I. Yeah, but are you? Really? No, but I am excited. But America, I don't know. When I arrived, there were these gentle giants smelling of fucking gold and milk. They could do anything. Now look at them, fat as fuck. Scrawny on meth or yoga, it pissed it all away. To me, like that's a deeply revealing thing about Logan Roy, but also I think taps into the way a lot of people feel about, you know, the state of America and the American economy at this moment. Does that have a resonance for you? And do you think there's that characterized a certain generation of business leaders who do feel as though kind of like America's glory days are behind it, right? Oh, a hundred percent. I think there's a generation probably that grew up in the, I don't know if it's Tom Brokaw's greatest generation or not, but in that space that looks at where we are now and says, we threw it away. We missed the opportunities. 
we became so politicized. Everything that happens that you cover and chronicle so well on the circus. We're a country that doesn't have that kind of can-do, here-we-go sense that, that I think you saw in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, right? And then obviously then went on hyper mode in the 80s. Fat as fuck, scrawny on meth or yoga. That's an epitaph for America right there. Here's my question, though. So then all these yeah. other shows have come out. This is my last like movie, TV, cultural question about your uh, world, right? Right. It's like a real thing now, right? You know, our friends, Brian and Dave, made Super Pumped. The beginning of an anthology series, the first season was about the rise and fall of Travis Kalanick at Uber. Super Pumped for Showtime. We crashed about WeWork. The Dropout uh, about Elizabeth Holmes. I think I got one more episode to go on WeWork, yeah, right? I think that's right. I haven't been watching it. They're played by great actors, great directors, great scripts, etc. But they're all basically, you know, everywhere you turn now, there's some high-end prestige television series taking a shit on insane, eccentric, immoral, young tech founders, essentially, right? It seems to kind of be a trend right now. What does that say about the culture that that is now where the appetite, or at least where the companies that commission this stuff think the appetite is? Look, it appears that at least the Hollywood buyers out there are fascinated by scam stories. You've seen it even in the context of documentaries less around business per se, but you know, true crime. True crime has become, in the podcast space, true crime is it. And these are sort of examples of a sort of tech true crime or business true crime or finance true crime. And they have all of the elements, oftentimes these Shakespearean, very dramatic elements and characters. And I think for the first time, people are taking these stories and putting them on the screen. The other thing that's happened that I think is allowed for this in a way is a sense that the audience has actually become much more sophisticated about issues of economics, of right. business, of tech and finance. Yeah. I know 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when even when we were doing Too Big to Fail, the film for HBO, there really was an anxiety worry of, you know, how much do we have to explain to the audience about what this means? Now right. I do think, and people talk about financial literacy, and I think there's a lot of financial illiteracy in America, but there are now especially those who are subscribing to HBO and Showtime and Hulu and the like, they're a pretty sophisticated bunch. Right. I mean, funny that the big short, which came out after Too Big yes. to Fail, right? Yeah, about two years after, I think. And Adam McKay still thought he needed to like put Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to describe you know, credit default swaps, right? And now you're like, oh, of course people know what that is. You don't need to explain these things, right? I think the tech thing is interesting to me, though, because you know, when I went to Silicon Valley and wrote a letter from Silicon Valley for The New Yorker, you know, I moved out there in 98. And man, that moment was still, you know, barefoot billionaires, Mark Andreessen on the cover of Time magazine with no shoes and, and a crown on his head. And the web was being born and, you know, the new economy, basically, you know, it was all just, you know, every politician wanted to go there. None of what you see in Travis Kalanick and in Elizabeth Holmes and in a lot of the other portraits, even in Lucas Matson. That was not how we thought about the tech business then. In, right. in what it was still wasn't its infancy. I would say it was its adolescence. But now we're in this later stage where the thing that I guess people want, because of Mark Zuckerberg and because of other things, they want to look at these people and be like, "Yeah, these guys are fucking scam artists, and they're ruining our society, and they're too rich for their own good." But I also think it's slightly different, which is that specifically the companies that have been featured in, in these most recent set of series. They were story companies. They were selling a narrative. 
Right. I think a lot of the folks who were building businesses in the 90s that you were covering, late 90s, early aughts, the internet, early on, they weren't really story stocks. I mean, they became story stocks during the dot-com boom in some way. Right. But And they were always selling a dream. There was a dream to be sold of some sort, but it felt different. These characters and Adam Newman at WeWork, at Travis Kalanick, they were selling a dream. I mean, truly a dream. And maybe a fever dream, by the way, given what the result was. Sure. But the, all I guess I mean is that the, the phase of the new economy sheen on like anything that came out of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is this dream place that's the engine of innovation in the American economy. And we're all rooting for it. It's like all the innovation comes from here and it leading us toward this new future. Nobody talks like that anymore. People don't talk about Mark Zuckerberg that way right. or about Twitter totally. that way. Maybe a little bit still on Apple, but pretty much all those companies, if not seen as scams, they're seen as more like, man, these companies are really fucking big and they're in my life in a way that I like and hate at the same Hates time the and same I'm time. nervous about right. and you know all that. It's all ambivalence. And so maybe the reason this is happening now is because it's all relatable, right? Everybody's touched. Everyone's been, and not everybody, but a lot of people have been in an Uber. They've either been to a WeWork or they understand it. The concept of what Elizabeth Holmes was trying to do, I can tell you what it is in a sentence. And right. Most people can get it. Right. You know, nobody's doing a, a show yet on, uh, you know, if somebody had created a cloud company that was a scam, that... <laughs> That, yeah. <laughs> that one would be pretty hard. By the way, one of the reasons I think that actually crypto, and, and I think actually this last season's Billions did a nice job with it, but yeah. crypto is a hard one to actually put on its feet on the screen because even though a lot of people are now touching it, it's still sort of a hard thing to get your head around. The problem with doing technology always in any of these forms is basically that, you know, the most of the real work goes on inside people's heads and, you know, getting computer screens with code only really in the matrix, the only place that ever was really dramatic. Before we get back to real business, I'm going to play one last piece of TV sound just because I want to hear what you have to say about this. From our friends, Brian and Dave, super pumped. This is Travis Kalanick expressing what I think of as being a very common way of thinking about leadership and foibles of leadership in these industries and in the billionaire class in general or the aspiring billionaire class. This is from Super Pumped. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Sometimes to change the world, you need to do whatever is necessary to take a no and turn it into a yes. If that means acting like an asshole, being an asshole, I'm an asshole. And I'm not alone in that. To paraphrase everybody's favorite poet, the asshole now is later to win. Here's a roster for you. Gates, asshole. Jobs, asshole. Bezos, I would say it, but I'm actually scared to. And if you think I'm wrong about any of that, just go read the court cases, the articles for yourself. You know what? Don't just sit there farting into your couch and dreaming about everything you would do if you weren't so goddamn nice. How common is that attitude among entrepreneurs that you know? And do you basically agree with it? Oof. I think in a private moment, it's probably right, though I think generationally there's now a move or a feeling that hopefully nice guys could finish first with a sort of private acknowledgement that maybe that's a tough ask. Yeah. I, I think there's there are entrepreneurs today that are trying to be, you know, nicer. I mean, I think about like a Brian Chesky who runs Airbnb. Yeah. He's had a tremendously successful business. By the way, in many cities, sort of like Uber, they had to get ahead of the regulators in a way, meaning they had to build out as quickly as humanly possible before the regulators could get there so that they could get enough scale and get enough support. So the regulators sort of had to fall in line with them. I don't know if you have to be an asshole per se, but boy, is it right that I think if you look at, you know, Bill Gates in the early days and, and Steve, 
And so many of the entrepreneurs that have had great success today, there is an element, especially those that have had to sort of totally disrupt other industries, that it's very hard to do that and make friends at the same time. We're going to take one more break and we'll be back with more Andrew Ross Sorkin here on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Andrew Ross Sorkin on Hell and High Water. Andrew, thank you for taking that little uh, detour with me uh, for those few minutes there. But it is now time for us to address our second big story of the two big stories that we brought you here to talk about today. And that is a story that was kind of in the same way that I think this Twitter Elon Musk thing is going to dominate headlines for the rest of this week. Last week, the biggest story in business was one that I got to see up close because I was down in Florida for the circus. And it's the story basically of DeSantis versus Disney. He basically went across the Rubicon and went from the realm of symbolic politics, you know, what he'd been doing for weeks, which was kind of performative populism and, and taking shots at Disney, to actually enlisting the legislature in his cause and doing something to them that would potentially hurt their bottom line. A lot of people said, this is like straightforward retribution. Disney crossed you, Governor DeSantis, and Governor DeSantis is like, fuck that, I'm not having it. He did a press event on Friday in which he came right out and basically said, yeah, that's what I did. Take a listen to what he said here. He's going to be talking about some videos that, that some people surfaced from Zoom videos of Disney executives saying stuff that he found objectionable related to uh, gender and other things. And, and he uses it as an explicit kind of justification for doing this kind of extraordinary act of retaliation and retribution through the legislative process. So here's Ron DeSantis talking last Friday at his Stop Woke press conference. You need to watch these videos. These are videos of very high up people in this corporation in Disney, and they're talking about their intentional agenda to inject sexuality in the programming that's provided to our youngest kids, kids of my age, five, four, and two. They want that as part of Disney programming. The glee that these people had in these videos that they were going to get this stuff in. They were talking about concepts like pansexualism. I thought to myself, I don't know what that means, but I know I don't want my five-year-old daughter to be taught it. And so it's really, really problematic that when a company had been so, so uh, synonymous with parents of young children, to yes, come out against the parents' rights bill, but then to have those videos produced uh, where they're doing that. And, you know, I'm just not comfortable having that type of, uh, of, of agenda get special treatment in my state. I just can't do it. I, I think that that partnership that developed early on with Walt Disney, I don't think Walt would appreciate what's going on in this company right now. Obviously, the Don't Say Gay bill, as it's called by its opponents, that's been a central headline-making story on this larger story right. for the last couple of months. What we didn't expect was that when Republicans in the state legislature, Democrats in the state legislature, no one who covers it expected Ron DeSantis on Tuesday to say, you know what, I'm actually going to take the fringe argument, which is let's repeal this thing that's existed for Disney since 1967 that got Disney to come to Florida, basically, and we're going to punish them by taking it away. Well, I want to unpack it in a lot of ways, but this was the press conference he gave signing that into law on Friday. And, you know, he's gotten all this criticism. Basically, it's like you're being punitive. 
You know, you said this on your show when you talked about Florida State legislator. I saw that on mm-hmm. Squawk Box. Yep. It's like, is it not the case that all you're doing is punishing a company for speech? Because Disney didn't fight really in the battle. They only got involved when the law had already been passed, right? So it's like, you're just punishing them for expressing an opinion you don't like. He basically came out and said in that clip, oh, it's not that I'm punishing them. Yes, I didn't like that they got involved in criticizing us for the don't say gay bill. But the thing that really drove me was when I saw these secret Zoom videos of Disney executives who are trying to promote pansexualism, and I don't want my kid to have that. Florida, I'm not comfortable with us giving special treatment to a company that espouses those views, and so I'm just going to take them away with all of the economic consequences. Crazy, right? Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. (laughs) I can't even begin. First of all, it's completely sort of reversed which side typically the politicians are on. So Republicans, conservatives have been, you know, railing about cancel culture, railing about free speech. That has been the calling card. And of course, trying to talk about free markets and trying to help business and be business friendly for so long. And on the other side, you know, you have Democrats who've long been saying companies shouldn't be subsidized. This has completely reversed the positions wholly. Economically, this makes no sense for DeSantis and makes no sense for Florida. It will literally cost them something on the order of a billion dollars in terms of debt that the taxpayers will take on. They're going to lose something on the order of about 160 plus million dollars annually in taxes. Actually, people think it's a benefit. It actually isn't when you do the math. The whole thing sort of defies logic. The question is whether the conservative Republican base in Florida cares about logic and the it may very well be that they don't. Well, I would say it's beyond the conservative Republican base in Florida. I'd say the guy's getting ready to run for president. If Donald Trump yep. doesn't run, he's going to seek the Republican nomination and is the front runner mm-hmm. for it. So he's road testing, as presidential candidates often do who are governors, he's road testing in his reelection race, where, by the way, the more he's pushed these culture war issues, his popularity has just risen and risen. He's up at like 55% approval rate. He's got a hundred and some million dollars in the bank. He's got a 55% approval rating that's going up. He's going to win re-election almost certainly in the fall. And all he's doing is waiting on Trump. So this is the way he wants to run for president, Andrew. It's not just here. Oh, I get it. I just wonder if the business community, which has historically supported the Republican Party, and Trump may have become an outlier in this last election, but the question is maybe it won't be an outlier in the sense that if you were running a big American company today and you just saw what happened in Florida, do you think you would go move more folks down to Miami? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it's amazing, right? So when, when it suits politicians of the left and the right, we know populism, something we've talked about many times, populism and polarization are the two dominant themes of the politics of our lifetime. And so you see right-wing populists and left-wing populists who see political advantage in going after business or Wall Street, right? But almost always it's rhetorical. It's like the way Trump took on carried interest in the 2016 campaign and totally. had never had any intention of repealing it, right? There was a moment here where DeSantis seemed to be winning with the Republican base by just kicking the shit out of Disney, but would never have had to say, I'm going to do something that could affect your bottom line. And instead, that's what happened. He crossed the Rubicon. You know, and here in Florida, where normally a Republican governor with a Republican legislature, it's the establishment Republicans in the legislature with the governor would be in lockstep. Here, DeSantis is more in lockstep with fringe characters in the Republican legislature, and he's calling the beat. And he basically decided, I guess, I mean, I want you to talk about it. What is it you think he's calculating that 
a company that's a $60 billion corporation that's more associated with Florida and Southern California than any other places in the world, the largest employer in the state, the largest driver of tourism dollars in the state for the past 50 years, that this governor thought, I'm not just going to take symbolic wax at them. I'm going to take a real economic poke at them. What do you think's behind that? Is there any way in which you think that? I know you're saying you don't think it makes sense, but put yourself in DeSantis's head. No, no. Okay. So look, the rational, if there is a rational version of this, the calculation is that Disney is living inside of a prisoner's dilemma. They're trapped. They're trapped in Florida. They can't go anywhere. The sunk cost is there. There is nowhere else for them to go. Right. They will suffer and that will be the end of it for Disney. And I think his perspective must be, has to be, that he can then turn around after hurting Disney and say to all the other businesses, look what I just did. I leveled the playing field. I leveled the playing field for you. So I think that that is the calculus. And then the last calculus has to be that if I'm going to run for president, I can show I'm a strong man. And... You know, there may be some taxpayers in Florida who will take on some of this cost, but they're not big enough to do anything about it. By the way, they're based in Orlando, the people who are going to be upset about it. And they weren't voting for DeSantis to begin with. Right. It's definitely the case that because of what you said a second ago, it would cost them. How much would it cost them to move Disney World? I mean, the sunk cost, it's incalculable. I I can't can't even imagine. $100 billion just to move it. I mean, and then people would be like, where the fuck is it? (laughs) Trying to reestablish someplace else. So he has them by the balls, but- Like conventional logic would be you have them by the balls, but you're not going to squeeze and actually cause any physical harm. But that's what he's decided to do here. And there's one element of these, what you said, there's the leveling the playing field. There's another thing, though, right, which everyone thinks they're doing, which is sending a message to every company in in Florida that says you could be next. Cross this governor. Cross this governor and you could be next. A hundred percent. Not just on this social issue, but on every issue. All issues. Yes. Yes. This is an intimidation of corporations, but this is an intimidation of everybody. This is chest out to all comers. You come at me, I'm coming at you so much harder. Yeah. I mean, it's mob politics, right? Because again, you know, the fact is that although this bill was signed into law by DeSantis, it doesn't take effect until June of 2023. So, you know, that's a little more than a year from now. The legislature is free to reverse it at any point, you know, in the next 13 or 14 months. They're free to do that. Could get undone. But it's very mafia, right? It's kind of like, we've now shown you that we're willing to take this away from you, Walt Disney Corporation. But, you know, if you do the right things, who knows? Maybe we'll reconsider. And the way the legislature works here, if DeSantis decides six months from now that he wants to give it back to Disney, they'll just do it. That's how it works here. You know, DeSantis decides what he's going to do. The legislature follows. I'm not saying he's going to do that. I'm not saying he's going to do that. But it's like a protection, right? It's like there's an element of if you want to induce good corporate behavior, what's better than not just ostensibly taking something away, but holding out the promise that, hey, if you behave, if you're really good little boys and girls, maybe you could convince us to give it back. I will say, though, that this is not a idiosyncratic moment, which is to say, in a way, I think we're seeing things like this happen all over the country. Well, yes, that's where my next wanted to go. You know, you think about what happened in Georgia with the voting rights and, and therefore what happened to Major League Baseball, what happened to Delta and the tax benefits they were supposed to get. You think about American Airlines in Texas. I mean, you can go down the list. This is becoming a strategy. Right. You would call it what strategy? What would you call it? The anti-wokeness strategy? Is that what that is? No, this is the get in line and don't cross me strategy. (laughs) 
on anything. Well, yeah, right. But the pretext of it in a lot of these cases is to basically say, you know, a large enough swath of our voters don't like the notion of wokeness, whatever the fuck that is. Even if we can accuse corporations of, of being that, we might be able to do this and not suffer political damage, even though we're attacking job creators in our states. Totally. But I, I think it's about wokeness. I think it's about taking social issues and sort of turning them on their head and sort of forcing the issue in a way where, where businesses, as we've talked about so many times before, John, where you know they've desperately wanted to stay out of these things. And obviously in Florida at Disney, Bob Chapak was doing his damnedest to stay out of it. And that turned out to be he seemed to have make, made a mistake. His employees went after him. Right. Former CEO Bob Iger was out there making his own comments about what he right. thought. And now you're in the soup. And here we are in the soup. I really want to come back to the Disney perspective, the end of the JPEG thing in a second. But first, let me just play another piece of DeSantis sound on this Stop Woke bill, right? The other bill that he signed mm -hmm. into law on Friday is uh, an anti-CRT bill, basically, or is seen as that. It addresses race rather than the issues of sexuality and gender. And it basically is, it's, it allows parents to sue schools and teachers if any kind of teaching that relates to race makes their children uncomfortable. That's literally what the language of the law says. If your kids are made uncomfortable by what they hear in class. So essentially, you can't talk about slavery at all, I would think, because anybody with a conscience what's, would be made uncomfortable by that. What's so crazy about all of this is this is the same party that has been calling people yeah. Karens and snowflakes. I know. On every other thing. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's okay. All right. So he's going to talk about some other companies. Let's play uh, DeSantis talking about the Stop Woke Act. The bill that we're signing is called the Stop Woke Act. Woke is Stop Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees Act. Because unfortunately, you've seen employees that get subjected to this same type of ideology in the guise of workforce training. Coca-Cola, for example, had their employees uh, be urged to be, quote, less white as part of the company's diversity training. Google employee program claims that America is a system of white supremacy and that all Americans are, quote, raised to be racist. Walt Disney Corporation claimed that America was founded on, quote, systemic racism and encouraged employees to complete a, quote, white privilege checklist. Under this law, that is a violation of your civil rights. So let me start with the fact check. Are those claims true? There's so much bullshit that these governors and conservatives spout about these kinds of things in corporate America. Well, I'll give you one example. He says the Google employee program claims that America is a system of white supremacy. And then he says that Walt Disney claimed that America was founded on, quote, systemic racism. So, I mean, America was founded on systemic racism. To deny that is to deny the reality of slavery, right? That's not even a, really a controversial claim. You could have arguments about how much white supremacy still exists, but you can't have an argument historically, right? So that's one point. But a second point is, if that language exists within some Google employee training, why is that within some Google employee training? What's the argument for that? And I'm not challenging it. I'm more just asking, is this all been a kind of a reaction? I know it's been on the rise in corporate America throughout, but is much of it a result of the racial reckoning post-George Floyd? Obviously, a lot of things happened in that moment. But secondly, is there some basis in which part of the way in which this works politically is that there is, at least for a lot of Americans who think of their job as what they hope to be a kind of a politics-free zone where they kind of go, yeah, you know what? I agree America was founded on systemic racism, but why is that in my employee manual? Like, why, am, right. why are we talking about it here? And that's what Republicans are kind of homing in on the question of, is it appropriate in this venue? Right. Now, look, I think that there's two things going on. I think you're 100% right. In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, 
you saw corporations who had been trying to evolve, but let's be honest, not evolving <laughs> fast enough. Let's uh, right. stipulate. I think get a little bit faster, probably still not fast enough if we're being candid about it. But nonetheless, I think that was a reckoning and a moment for a lot of businesses to look inwards and try to figure out how they were going to communicate about a lot of these issues. And as a result, I think in the case of Google, in the case of Coca-Cola, in the case of others, they look to, and look, I was going to say the New York Times, my employer, the 1619 Project, you know, has become this fault line in parts of America about what our history really what yep, really was. Yep. But I think that companies are trying to diversify. They're trying to diversify up and down the ranks. They're trying to be more inclusive. And in the con in the process of being more inclusive, there is a level at which or an extent to which they're probably exclusive. And people inside these companies are feeling that. By the way, I think that people who were minorities for a very long time and inside a lot of these companies they felt excluded. So of course, I think of course. there's there's going to be speed bumps right. along the way. Right. And people are going to feel them. And it may not always be comfortable, but you could argue for certain groups, it has been uncomfortable for a very long time. So part of the reason I asked the question is because I think, you know, one of the things that a guy like Ron DeSantis does and a lot of these culture warriors do is they lump together as this act does schools and companies, right? And, you know, school is such a formative experience for everybody, right? It's not surprising that curricula is a hot button issue because of its formative nature and because it gets into things like history and some of these other areas. I guess my question for you is, as we sit here in 2022, it's always seemed to me that the corporation is a very uncomfortable place as a driver of social change. You know, I have a basically kind of Marxist attitude towards, towards corporations. I'm not like the idea that we expect companies, not because in some idyllic world, it wouldn't be great if they were engines for social change, but I have a much darker view of like what companies are about yep. generally. Yep. And so because of that, I wonder whether it's realistic to expect that companies will be engines for social change, whether that's the right venue for, for change, enlightenment, for progress in the way that we hope it would be. And I mean, all the aspirations are right. And the question I have for you is, how do companies feel about it sitting here in the early phases of 2022? Because there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to this, but where are people at right now having right. gone through the Floyd thing and come out the other side and now being hit with this wall of attacks for things when they were trying to get a little better? Totally. I think you know, most of the business leaders that I talk to today feel like they're stuck between uh, you know, a rock and a hard place. They really they feel this way. They wanted to, quote unquote, do the right thing. I think the right thing for them sometimes means shutting up and the right thing for them sometimes means acting out on behalf or speaking out on behalf of the perspective of their employees, knowing that there's going to be blowback on the other side. I think a lot of them feel captive to their employee base. I think one of the things so interesting is you have some of these companies which are based on the coasts who have an employee base with a particular position, political position, who then are doing business in other places, and they're trying to wrestle with that. I mean, that was really the Disney problem in many ways. Right. It's a very tough thing to do. And the truth is, you know, Milton Friedman, actually, who didn't believe that businesses should have a social purpose, used to say, and maybe rightly in certain ways, he used to say, you know, why do you want these unelected CEOs who are basically using shareholder money to advocate for political position. What is why, why should that be a good thing? But at the same time, we also lived through a period in Washington and arguably still live through a period where there has been an absence of leadership 
on a lot of these issues. Right. And the business community felt that they had to fill the void in part to support their own businesses. I mean, I think all of this has sort of come to the fore in the aftermath and during the Trump presidency. Yes. Is the truth of the matter. Yeah. Yeah. Because he unearthed so much of the kind of dark, angry, grievance-based And just broke so many of the norms. And it used to be that the business community, whether it was, you know, what countries do you want to do business in or how are we going to deal with this? used to be that the business community hid behind, you know, the secretary of state, whatever their position was, we would do what they are saying. You know, then you'd have situations like, you know, Khashoggi would be murdered by the Saudis. (laughs) Nobody in Washington from the White House would say anything. And all these businesses are like, oh, my God, what are we supposed to do now? just wasn't normal. Right. So I want to talk about the Disney thing from the Disney side now, just because this will be taught in business schools. You know, mm-hmm. the basic history here is DeSantis in February says the law is called the parental rights in education bill, but others call the don't say gay bill. He says he's for it. It gets passed later in that month. Right. And Iger condemns the bill on Twitter in late February. In March, the Hollywood Reporter writes a piece that says, why Disney won't say much about Florida's don't say gay bill. And Chapek, the new head of Disney, who's basically been like, I'm staying out of politics. I'm staying out of politics. We're not going to be involved in this. He defends the company's public silence and says, you know, we support the LGBTQ community. And then in March, after the bill passes the Senate, a Substack thing comes out and says, it's the inside story of how Disney turned its back on the LGBTQ community, says that they've donated $300,000 to supporters of the don't say gay bill. The next day, Chapek, new CEO, says, we're not going to give any more money in Florida. I am apologizing to the employees. He says, I didn't support the LGBTQ community. I let you down. I'm so sorry. Right. And he says that we're going to now oppose the bill. But it's too late because the thing's been passed by the legislature. This ends up, well, no one's happy in the end. Right. Now, the progressives in general and progressives inside the company are like, you're too fucking late, buddy. Is ineffectual and lame. And now the conservatives are like, Disney, we have a target now. And that's where the beginning of the attacks on Disney begin. I'd like you to just talk about Bob Chapek and whether you think, as I do, that this has just been one of the most spectacularly mishandled pieces of corporate communications and corporate leadership that I've seen in certainly my recent lifetime, maybe in my entire lifetime. Look, I think that Bob Chapek, first of all, he's, what, less than a year, well, maybe now more than a year in the job But Bob Iger has now officially sort of stepped away. Uh, And I think these are, to say, growing pains, but in a particularly unique moment, an early gaffe. The question is what he should have done early on, how he could have done it, how active he was internally or behind the scenes in Florida. I don't think he was. And in an age when employees and customers don't want anyone actually doing anything behind the scenes. They want everything to be transparent. They want to see it up front. You know, could he have been more persuasive early on? And I would also say, by the way, I don't think he was helped in this case by Bob Iger. And there is this very unusual relationship uh, sort of soap opera that's playing itself out quite publicly now between Bob Iger, who effectively picked Bob Chapak to be his chosen successor, and a complete split between them where they both seem to be either purposely or almost like trolling each other somehow. And I think that's not made it any easier and likely probably made the whole situation harder. 
you know, in the old days, I think if Bob Iger were in charge, he would have come out against the bill, but he would have done it early. He would have done it and said that he was speaking on behalf of his own employees, not necessarily the entire company or something like that. And he probably would have gotten on a plane and tried to spend a lot of time with DeSantis to try to work this through. And I just don't think that the Chapek either knew to do it, knew how to do it, or if he did try, was in this case able to be effective doing that. Here's John Oliver. This is uh, the Oliver take on this, which I think a lot of people sort of share in this moment. This is in the middle of March. And he disses Chapek when Chapek first said, we don't really do politics here. The thing that we do to advance the cause of historically disenfranchised groups is our content. Our content is what does the work for us. And Oliver spends some time trashing that view and says it's ridiculous given the way that a lot of historically disenfranchised groups have been stereotyped and turned into villains and Disney products over the course of the last hundred years. And then he moves on to the the politics thing. And let's listen to that. Here's John Oliver talking about what happened next. So Chapek's statement did not go over well. And two days later on a shareholder call, he took another swing expressing opposition to the bill and saying this. When we uh, donate money to uh, different political candidates, we have no idea how they're going to vote going forward into the future. That is such bullshit, it is actively insulting. Because that's just not how donating works. When you donate money, you generally know what the recipient is going to do with it. That is why people give to Feeding America and not Feeding America, or maybe take food away from America and put it in a big hole, who really knows? So that gets at kind of a core thing, right? Which is that he sounded like an idiot, as if he were naive, something no one would ever say about Bob Iger. The way that he handled this, he ended up with nobody on his side. He satisfied no one, made himself a target of everyone. And that's why I think it was so badly mishandled. I don't know what the, I'm not a corporate communication strategist, but I can tell you that outcome is not the outcome that a high level, highly functioning, highly competent, a leader. Though I will tell you, there are people inside Disney who tell themselves that that actually means success in the same way that a journalist might say, if everybody hated the article, I probably did it right. Do you agree with that? Maybe in the context of being a journalist. Yeah, no, I'm talking about the context so of being Bob. In the, context, I'm talking about the context of being Bob Chapek and running a sixty billion dollar company you took over a year ago. Look, by default, this hasn't worked. We could just stipulate it hasn't worked. It didn't work. Right. I mean, Ron DeSantis is an idiot, but he's not an idiot. I mean, political people think that part of what's going on here is that DeSantis would never have done this to Bob Iger because Bob Iger was a person with throw weight and stature, and DeSantis would never have taken on Bob Iger. But he saw Bob Chapek and thought he was weak. And like all bullies, all great Republican bullies, Donald Trump and others, when they sense weakness is when they go in for the kill. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know what Ron DeSantis thinks of Bob Chapek, but it's certainly a playbook. It's the Trump playbook. You see someone who's weak, who's not fully in control, and that's when you press your advantage and do what DeSantis has done here with Chapek and Disney. That feels right. That sounds right. I don't know if that was the initial thought that DeSantis would have had necessarily. But I think as this has played out and he's seen the reaction from Bob Chapek, the various sort of statements that have been made and the blowback, I think then he said, "Okay, I can put my foot on the gas here in a big way. One of the smartest and most plugged in media people that we both know said to me today on the phone that he thought Iger would be back within six weeks, would be running the company again. Chapek would be gone. Iger would be coming back for 18 months or a year and saying, we messed the succession up. We got to get it right. I'm going to run the company, steady the ship for the next year, and then I'll pick another successor. Do you think that's plausible? I remember, by the way, the day that Bob Chapek got the job, people thought... (laughs) People thought that Bob Iger was just setting him up so that Bob Iger could return. Yeah. Look, nothing would surprise me at this point. 
And I think that Bob Iger probably would like to come back if he could. If he can't be president, what else would you want to be? Another thing we know Bob Iger wants to be. Right. I think he wanted to be president. And then I think he also, by the way, wanted a role as an ambassador to China, as you know. Yes, indeed. Um, and I think those things are off the table. And right now he's acting as a venture capitalist and an advisor to companies and such. And clearly having the heft of Disney behind you is a big thing. Can't, you can't just do it from Twitter. He's underemployed currently, Andrew. He's, he's underemployed. I like that phrase, underemployed. Yeah, you, you like that phrase, Andrew, but uh, it's not really a, a phrase that you have any intimate familiarity with because you may be the least underemployed person in America. <laughs> That's going to be like your epitaph. Andrew Ross Sorkin, the least unemployed person who ever lived on planet Earth. Uh, anyway, busy <laughs> man that you are, it's awesome uh, to see you and, and thank you for taking the time to come on. Hell and High Water, I hope you'll come back again soon. We'll talk some more. Well, same here. This is a ball. Thank you for having me. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Andrew Ross Sorkin for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us or rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Pierre Benemé engineer of the podcast. Justin Trimble handles the research actually just on this last podcast. He's done. He's out of here. This is the last one. We send him off to other places with a lot of love and respect, but this will be the last one. Last Trimble research thing. Oh, sad. Margaret Gray, she's our assistant producer. She's going to be taking up the Trimble slack going forward. Stephanie Stender are always busy, never underemployed post producer, and the one and only the king, the god, the truth, the answer. Marshall Eisen, our executive producer.